uh, you know, it's Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. That's what they say, right? Superlative statements like that, though, they always kind of get in your mind a little bit. People saying, oh, I can't wait for Christmas, you know, and you do all the things, you make all the preparations, and you start wondering in your head, have you ever wondered, is this as good as it gets? I mean, is it really the most wonderful time of the year? Stressful. You know, and sometimes you get a little disappointed. Hope is such an interesting concept and word to me. I mean, I'd call it powerful, and uh, this, this is important. Hope is a word that can drive your life. People can sail across an ocean fueled by hope. And to me, hope is, and I want you to get this definition, hope is setting your heart on a better future. That's what hope does. You know, you, you see this future that you want and you're hoping to bring it about. It's a big deal. It's using that disposition to drive your life and build toward that future. Hope is a wonderful thing. I mean, hope uh, can change the world for the better. You want to be around people who are contagiously full of hope. They're fun to be around. They're, they're inspiring people. Question for you, it's a bit of a trick question, but what is the opposite of hope? I don't think it's hopelessness. To me, hope and hopelessness are a part of a greater scale. When you run out of hope, you do become hopeless. You can become numb, unmotivated, but to me, there's still a whole nother side to the scale. And the opposite of hope to me is, is dread, dread. Dread is the opposite of hope. See, hope is concerned about getting a better future. Dread is concerned about losing what you have in the present. Right? When you're driven by dread, instead of wanting to get something better that's ahead of you, you want to hang on to, dread wants you to hang on to what you have right now. It fears losing what you got. Dread, just like hope, can drive you, but it's a toxic drive. It's a, it's a fuel in life that doesn't lead to good places. This is a picture of my nephew, Owen, from many years ago. Today, he's almost 17 years old. But back in the day, Owen was famous for hanging onto animals too tightly. You can see that bunny. It is not breathing in that picture. And uh, I asked my sister-in-law, Bethany, I said, hey, can you send me some pictures of Owen hanging on to, you know, some animals? And she sent me like four different pictures where he is choking out animals. But when he was two, my in-laws had a 30,000-gallon in-ground pool, big, nice pool, and it had those skimmers. And in Minnesota, pool skimmers are always full of frogs. And so he'd open it up and he'd pull a frog out of there and uh, he would cry if the frog got away. But here's what Owen learned. If you squeeze those frogs super tight, they stop trying to escape. And so he'd come up to me, Uncle John, look at this frog. And I'd just see his guts out of its mouth. And I'd be like, hmm, you know, when he wasn't looking, just throw it over the fence. But uh, that's what dread looks like to me. Hanging on to this life so tightly, you squeeze it to death. Have you ever met somebody who hangs on to life so tightly they're just squeezing it to death? I think part of the reason Christmas has lost its luster for some of us, for that matter, the reason life has lost its luster is because sometime between the ages of two and 25, we slid down the spectrum of hope, eventually all the way to dread. Do you remember when you were eight years old and you hoped for so much? I mean, you couldn't wait. Christmas was driven by hope. I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait to open my presents. Can't wait to see my aunts and uncles. I can't wait to go to church and hold my candle. Right, you remember that Christmas Eve service? You'd hold that candle, you were so excited. I used to get it really warm so it would melt super fast, which was terrible. It's actually a terrible mess to clean that stuff up. But a couple decades later, our hope for good things is replaced by a fear of losing the good things that we got. We used to hope for kids, now we're afraid that our kids are gonna hurt themselves. Couldn't wait for Christmas Eve as a kid, now we're afraid that our kid's gonna light himself on fire. We're afraid of losing the hope that we have. And that is the sound of dread. 
excuse me, getting over a cold. <clears throat> How old were you when you started living in dread instead of hope? I can remember in my early 20s when I became hopeless. There was just not many good things I was looking forward to. I slid down the spectrum of hope into that middle ground and I was just sort of numb, you know? I mean, I wasn't excited about Christmas. I wasn't excited about my birthday. There's nothing I really wanted. I was just numb. <clears throat> but then I slid all the way down when I met my wife and got married. That's sad. I had everything I ever wanted. I had my wife, I had kids, I had my dream, I had my career, and suddenly, instead of hoping for these things in the future, I dreaded losing the things that I got. When I was young, I was a dreamer, but as I aged, I became a dreader. I wonder if you guys have experienced something like that, where life has lost its luster, where Christmas has lost its feeling of hope, and instead, it's just been replaced by dread. Today, I wanna to talk about finding that hope again, and even if you're not a Christian, I think you're gonna like this message. I wanna talk about living for a life of hope in a world full of dread. And to do that, we're gonna do two things. Number one, um, we're gonna look at some Bible. And number two, we're gonna make some points. King Herod the Great was the king of Judea when Jesus was born. Many of you know him from the Christmas story. And we know a lot about him from in the Bible and out of it. Uh, from outside the Bible, many historians from antiquity, Josephus, Strabo, Nicholas of Damascus, and Cassius, all included interesting biographies or tidbits about Herod the Great in their writings. And I love the Bible like no other holy book, not the Book of Mormon, not the Quran. The Bible corresponds with history and archaeology. If the Bible says something happened this way, you can dig it up, you can find it, and that's the way it happened. You know, Jericho. I mean, here are these ancient ruins. And archaeologists are surprised because it seems like the walls just exploded outward. I mean, how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. God told us. It was the work of God. It was the hand of God. You know, and here's a city. There's no other ancient tell, no other ancient ruins that we have that are just full of grain and treasure. Why are the Jericho ruins full of treasure? Because God said, don't plunder it. it. Corresponds with history and archaeology. I want to look at Herod the Great's life. And uh, Herod grew up in a family that played the great game of politics. His dad was a man named Antipater. Uh, he was a political outsider who came from nothing and clawed his way towards the top. Herod was not Jewish by blood. Herod was uh, a descendant of the patriarch Esau. And if you know your Bible, Esau was a twin brother of a man named Jacob. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, but Esau's descendants were not considered Jewish. The Jewish royals of Herod's day, they were part of a dynasty called the Hasmonean dynasty, and um, that's where all the power was at. Herod's dad got real close to the king, and Herod had hopes as a boy of becoming a king himself, which is kind of laughable because he wasn't Jewish or a part of the royal family. It's like, it's not gonna happen, bro. It's like me saying, someday I dream of becoming an NFL linebacker. You know what I mean? Like, that ain't gonna happen. Professional video game player, maybe. You know, engineer, mathematician, maybe. Chinese food restaurant owner, possibly. Probably not an NFL linebacker. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not in the cards for you, like genetically. But Herod had his hopes set on being king, even though he wasn't Jewish. He was determined. Herod's father was assassinated in 43 BC when Herod was 33. And rather than getting in a rut about, about it, Herod seized the opportunity. And uh, not only did he seize his father's position as an advisor to the Jewish king, he actually traveled to Rome, met with the Roman Senate, and got the Roman Senate to appoint him to be king of the Jews in place of the Jewish royal family, which is remarkable. And by the year 39 BC, Herod had consolidated his power and become the absolute monarch of modern day Israel, of the Roman province of Judea. And he achieved everything he'd hoped for. And that's a scary statement. 
He achieved all of his hopes and dreams. And, and what happened was Herod had a great hope for the future. I want to be king someday. I want to have all this stuff someday. And as soon as he got it all, he switched from dreaming to dreading. By all outward measures, Herod had a great life. He had the equivalent of nearly a thousand Lamborghinis and Ferraris. I mean, pretty sick. He was famous for his chariot collection. Archaeologists estimate that he estimate that he had in the high hundreds to possibly even a thousand chariots. Why do you need that much personal transportation, man? Chariots were super expensive, but he had a bunch. Red one, blue one, gold one. I don't know. I mean, how, how much variation is there in chariots? Who knows? I'm not an expert, but he also built the finest temple in all of the Roman Empire. Many of you don't know this, but the finest building in the entire Roman Empire was a Jewish temple. Herod remodeled it and rebuilt it, and it was 35 acres, 35 soccer fields. It was huge. It was the largest temple complex in the whole Roman Empire. And about it, historians from antiquity said, you've not seen beauty in buildings until you've seen Herod's temple. He had amazing houses too. This is a modern-day conception or reconstruction of one of the terraces at his palace at Masada, overlooking the Dead Sea. That's awesome. I mean, you can visit the ruins of this palace at Masada. It's got an incredible history. But can you imagine having a dozen vacation homes that look like this? I mean, that's well, pretty cool. You know, even today, 2,000 years later, I would, I would like to, you know, rent that VRBO. You know what I mean? He also had a breathtakingly beautiful wife. His first wife, Doris, was pretty. She had a son um, for him. But then he sent her off because he found an opportunity to upgrade in his mind. There was a Jewish princess named Mary Amne, part of the former Jewish royal family that he had usurped. And he thought, if I marry this girl, then I can have offspring that will actually be a part of Jewish blood, marry back in, it'll all be good. He'll be accepted in his mind. And as a bonus, Mary Amne was widely noted as the most beautiful person in all of the province of Judea and possibly the world. She was like Cleopatra level beauty. So this dude, Herod, had everything. He had cars, he had mansions, he had a huge military that we didn't even talk about. He has wealth and he has a wife who is an absolute smoke show. He has everything that he hoped for. And right about that time, his hope switched to dread. And Herod is not remembered for the things that he accomplished. He's remembered as one of the least happy, most miserable men in all of antiquity. That's what historians remember Herod for. It's kind of interesting. He was desperately afraid of losing what he had. Check him out in the Bible in Matthew 2, verse 1. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from Eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Now keep in mind, Herod is towards the end of his reign at this point. He's in his late 50s, possibly early 60s at this point. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw a star as it rose. We've come to worship him. And King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard all this. <clears throat> it's like, come on, man. This is a baby. Like, it's a baby. You are not going to be overtaken for a long time. What, I mean, what are you even worried about? But instead of looking at this as an opportunity to learn, instead of not really worrying that much about it because it is a baby, he thinks what everybody driven by dread thinks. What if I lose everything? What if everything I work to build comes tumbling down around me? What if this baby ruins my plans? So he tries to trick the wise men. In verse seven, it says, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go back to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child and you'll find him. And then come back to me and tell me so I can go and worship him too. He has no intention of worshiping Jesus too. He wants to kill him. His life at this point is marked by lies and deception. He has no intent of worshiping a child. The wise men don't go and tell him. They find the baby boy Jesus. They present their gifts, as many of you know. They worship him. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. 
The next part, the story reflects Herod's legacy. This is, if you have kids near you, time to use earmuffs. But um, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. I know that that sounds brutal, but the only reason it sounds brutal to you is because of the teachings of Jesus. In the rest of the world, right now, where the teachings of Jesus are not prevalent, killing human beings is not that big a deal. If you look at North Africa, where the religion of Islam prevails, people are killed, often. Genocides are committed. In atheist China, right now, there are concentration camps where the Uyghur people are being exterminated systematically and organs are being harvested out of practicers of Falun Gong. This action is marked by dread, not hope. He squeezed the frog until the guts came out because he didn't want to lose it. Herod would do the same type of thing over and over again. The woman that he loved, Mary Omne, he would have her strangled to death because he was afraid that she would betray him. He was afraid that she might betray him. He was actually in love with her. He was deeply depressed after he killed her. The historian Josephus said that he had her body preserved in honey for seven years where he would go and visit her and talk to her afterward. But he was so afraid of losing what he had in life that he squeezed the frog of life to death. He then had their two sons killed, respectively, out of a paranoid fear that they would usurp him. He then recalled his old wife, Doris, who he had exiled with their firstborn son. <clears throat> and Herod tried to love that son. But his life was marked by a habit of paranoia and dread. And he was constantly killing people that he felt threatened by, regardless of whether or not they were actually threatening him. So late in his life, just before he died, he literally days before his death ordered the murder of his wife, Doris, and then the murder of the son that he'd had with her out of a fear that this son might try and usurp him. And keep in mind, he was on his deathbed when he did this. It was one of his last orders. His dread did so much hurtful stuff. And the day that he died, he knew that no one would mourn his death. He knew, in fact, that there would probably be dancing in the streets so he ordered that a bunch of prominent Jewish family men be rounded up and killed at the moment of his death so that all Jerusalem would mourn when he died. This was his final order on earth. About him, Julius Caesar said, it's better to be a pig in Israel than to be one of Herod's sons. He died in a room full of people that hated him. And Herod the Great is not remembered for the monuments that, built, that he built, the leadership that he gave, the stability that he brought to Judea, which relatively was actually kind of incredible. He's remembered for being a miserable man full of dread. I want to talk about what dread brings to your life using Herod's life. And uh, there are three things that dread does. The first one is uh, dread completely removes the upside to any situation. And I want you to understand people who live in dread, they can't see the potential for positivity. They only can see downside. If you get somebody who lives in dread a gift, instead of being like, wow, this is cool, they think, where am I going to put this? What am I going to do with it? Just more stuff. You know, somebody who lives in dread, they're going on vacation. They're not like, oh, I'm so excited to go to vacation. They're like, oh my goodness, oh, I don't have time for vacation. I'm too busy on vacations. There's going to be another problem, you know, more money, more problems. You know, that's all it is, you know, make more money. I got more problems, you know, it's dread. That's dread. Everything's negative. They can't see positive. In fact, what dread does is it, 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 it removes your heart's ability to process positivity. You can only process negativity. Second thing that dread does is it blinds you from seeing the potential of good in, in your future. It's big. You get so stuck in your present. People who deal with dread, they can't see the possibility of good things in the future. And let me show you some things that people who are driven by dread, this is what they say. They say, um, it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. You know, it's just, it is what it is. I try to keep low expectations because I don't want to be disappointed. You know, I mean, I'm just kind of, you know, low expectations because I know it's not going to be good. You know, I mean, I mean I'm just disappointed. But I try to keep low expectations. 
I'm so anxious. What if, I, what if it goes wrong? What if it doesn't work out? What if, what if, what if? All these bad things. I mean, you look into the future and instead of seeing good possibilities, it's just, you know, what if we get robbed? I gotta make sure, you know, I keep my whatever and my head on a swivel. I got my piece here just in case somebody tries to rob me. You know, you never know what's gonna happen. People come down from Maryville, Gary, whatever else down here in Neat Park. You gotta make sure I got my piece. Too anxious. What if things go wrong? Too anxious to process. Too much to process. And what you hear is what you hear. People driven by dread is... um. America's not what it used to be. I'll tell you right now. You got these Republicans up in here, got these Democrats up in here just ruining everything. You know, they're ruining, I wouldn't, and this is people driven by dread, this is what they say, we live in the most prosperous country in human history during the most prosperous, peaceful, and healthy time in human history. People driven by dread, they say, I wouldn't wanna have kids today in America. I'm gonna tell you that right now. It's not, you know, I wouldn't wanna have kids today. It's dread. Instead of seeing the possibility of a good future, you just yearn for the past. Not because the past was better, but because in the past, you used to have hope. But now you're driven by dread. So you can't see good things. Third thing that dread does is it results in actions driven by negativity. I misphrased that point, but it results in actions driven by negativity. For Herod, and there's three different personality types um, that produce different negative actions, but for people like Herod and myself, and I'm just, I, I'm not a murderer, but I do have a personality where I see some similarities between myself and Herod. Um, <laughs> look out, Kristen, just kidding. <laughs> for Herod, it was anger, control, mistrust, and fear of betrayal. And that's what drives us high controllers when we're driven by dread. You know, we look around and when we're driven by dread, we just cluck, cluck, cluck at all the idiots. It's like, I'm the only one, you know, all these people are asleep at the wheel. Am I the only one that sees, you know, why do I always have to be the one that goes and fixes things? I'm just surrounded by a bunch of whatever. I mean, look at the garbage. I had four healthy kids with eight hands that just walked by a full garbage can, you know, and I'm the only one. That's what I sound like in my head, just driven by dread. Then there's others. You're not high controllers. Instead, you just shut down. Depression and anxiety results in detaching and running away in numbness. These people, you know, you're driven by dread and what you do, your defense is falling asleep. You can fall asleep mid-argument. Your talk is like, it's too much. It's like, how do you do that? You got anyone in your life like that? It's like, that's amazing. I wish I could just fall asleep because I'm stressed. For others, these are the people pleasers. You got any people pleasers in your life? They enter what I call the manic panic. They got all their plates spinning. We got to bake the cookie tins. We got the whatever. We got to make sure them. We got to send up the Christmas cards, make sure they sent us one last year. So we're going to send one them this year. And I didn't whatever and got to whatever. All these things, you know, not because you love people, because you're afraid of disappointing people. It's dread that drives you. Yeah, I know all you people pleasers are like, those controllers are the worst till I got to you. <laughs> crazy part about dread. And this is the crazy part. Is it so ubiquitous in your life? You don't even realize that it's there. I mean, it's the very air that you breathe. It's the language that you speak in your mind, the language of dread. You know, I started off this message. It's like, wow, Herod's messed up. You know, I don't hang on to life that tightly. Now I'm talking about it. It's like, oh yeah, I, there might be some dread in my life. Question for you, I really want you to think about this. What percent of your life is driven by dread? When it comes to your work, how much of your work life is driven by dread? I mean, remember when you were young, you used to go to, I can't wait to start my job, can't wait to make money. Now it's like, I don't even want to do anything but not get in trouble. That's my big goal. I just want to not get in trouble. I want to not make it. Used to, all I want to do now is not let my customers down, let the boss down, not whatever. I just want to not have it all collapse. That's it. Like, that's the goal. Like, just don't screw up. You used to love work. Now it's back to the rock pile. How about relationships? How much of your relationships are driven by dread? Young man, you met your girl. You couldn't wait to storm the mountaintops of her heart. 
I mean, you came home, you whipped her shirt off. Look at my six pack Skittles coming out your ears. You couldn't wait to win her heart romance. Now it's just, all I want to do is not get in a fight. That's it. I want to, you dread it. You just want to not fight. That's the big goal is to not be mad. Are you mad? Don't be mad at me. Are you mad? I'm sorry. Did I screw up? I'm sorry. What are you apologizing for? I don't even know, but don't be mad. It's just the bare minimum. All you want to do is not screw up. It's a relationship driven by dread. Speaking of relationships, it's a big one. When it comes to your relationship with God, what percent of that relationship is driven by dread? I think for American Christians, many of us don't really love God. We dread God. The only reason you became Christian because you didn't want to go to hell. That's it. You love God? No. I just, I don't want to go to hell, to be honest with you. Sounded bad. You know, for you, when you think of heaven, you don't think of seeing God's face. You think of seeing grandma's face. Do you ever visit grandma when she's in Oak Grove? No, but I'd really like to see her again in heaven, you know? Be nice. We just don't want to get in trouble. That's why we follow God. Stay out of trouble. Do you love God? No. When you think of heaven, do you think of seeing God's face? No. No, no, I, I don't. Our relationship with God is almost all based on dread. It's not a love of God. It's a dread of losing this life that we have. For us, the best version of heaven isn't really heaven. We don't think of God's presence. We just think of this life 2.0, just continuing this life. It's not that we love heaven. It's not that we love God. We're just hanging on to this life, hoping that we can have more of it. I'll prove it to you. What percent of your prayers are about not losing this life on earth? We don't have a hope for a future. We have a dread of not losing this life. Let me, there's five categories of prayers that I wrote down. This is what, 90% of American prayers, okay? I can tell you what God's inbox looks like. God, please heal me. God, please heal them. God, please get us there safely. Oh my gosh, that's what we pray about all the time. God, please bless this food to our bodies and please provide. That's it. That's what we pray for. Pretty much all of our prayers are encapsulated in that. And I'm not saying don't pray for food. I'm not saying don't pray for healing. That's fine. That's good. But there is more to existence than existing. God didn't come so that you could stay alive. Why did he come? He came so that you could have life, fulfilling life. There's more to life than being alive. I think for so many of us, we don't want to experience the life that can come from Christ. We just want to stay alive. So much of life and faith has been reduced to not dying. And we're just like Herod, my nephew Owen, holding that frog in our hand, squeezing it to death. And that's life. And that's Christmas. And some of you are like, Pastor, uh, I'm my friends at church. <laughs> See them kids? You know, look like they don't know where they are on stage. That was cute. Uh, are you going to turn this around? Because it is, you know, I'm, I'm ready for my second dose of lithium and it's not even noon yet. You know what I mean? What are you going to do? And I got an answer for you. Many of you already know where I'm going, okay? I've talked about dread. What's the opposite of dread? It's hope. And hope is this powerful thing. You know, I said it at first and you're like, yeah, hope. You know, it's one of the words of Advent. It's like, Pastor, this week is the joy week of Advent. Why are we talking about hope this week? Well, because I pulpit swapped with Pastor Sam Hamstrong the week I was supposed to talk about hope and I still want to talk about hope, okay? That's why, if you've got to know. But anyway, I want to talk about hope which is the opposite of dread. And hope does the opposite of dread. What does dread do? Dread has only downside. Hope has only upside. Hope always believes the best is yet to come. Hope blinds you to terrible things. I mean, you can have the worst events of your life happen and you still see goodness in them. I, uh, I, there's this old movie that is actually a terrible movie, but for some reason I like it. It, it occupies a nice spot in my mind. It's called Dumb and Dumber. Mary Swanson in Dumb and Dumber tells Lloyd Christmas, played by Jim Carrey, that uh, he doesn't have a chance with her. 
she's like, you know, he's, he's, he's like, is it one in a thousand? She goes, no, it's like, like one in a million. It's not going to happen. And Jim Carrey's character, full of hope, looks at her and says, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> that is hope. It believes there's always good, even in bad situations. Herod shows us that wealth will not necessarily give us a great life. Marrying the love of your life will not necessarily give you a great life, but hope, even if you're dumb, can make a bad life great. Second thing hope does. Dread blinds you to great future opportunities. Hope opens your eyes to great future opportunities. Hope takes every situation, helps you see the upside. And you know people like this, for those of you who are driven by dread, they're annoying, you know? They get diagnosed with cancer, they're like, it's not a setback, it's a setup. God's got this, it's okay. Best is yet to come. Somebody full of hope, you know, they just see good things. They spill a gallon of milk on the floor. They're like, oh good, I need to clean my floor. You know, I was hoping that I gained this opportunity. It's like, really? Like what is, how are you so, but you meet people like this and they're the people you wanna be around. They live with light and smile on their faces. They have light hearts. I mean, everything in life is an opportunity. Third thing hope does, dread drives you to action through negativity. Hope drives you to action through positivity. You know, people full of hope, they don't get you gifts and serve you and, and, and do things for you because they wanna make you not mad. They do it because they love you. They do it because they really can't wait to see you. I mean, you want people in your life, you want gifts given from, from hope. Gifts given out of dread. It's like, I Googled how much it costs and I added 3.2% cola from what they gave me last year. And this is the amount that I'm gonna give them this year because that's what they gave me last year and that's what it is and that's fair, okay? That's dread. I don't wanna disappoint. I wanna do what's fair. Hope says, oh man, lavish, generous, love you. Some of you might be like, okay, 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 okay. Hope is, is dope. I mean, hope is cool. It's great. But um, how do I get it? How do I get it? I'm like, I'm not a happy person. And I've got news for you. I, this might come as a surprise to you, have a tendency to not be a happy person either. I struggle with it, right? But I do have a solution. This is the best part of the message. It's just, I have one main point, and here's the thing, here's the thing. When I reveal this to you, you're gonna be like, that is not what I hope for, okay? That is not very good. But I'm gonna make it better, okay? It's gonna, you're gonna understand it by the end. It's gonna be practical, and we always get practical at the end. I promise I'll get practical, that's what we do. But um, I want you, big point, to grab onto the highest hopes. Herod the Great failed because he didn't set his hopes high enough. He set his hopes too low. And some of you are like, uh, Pastor, I don't mean to be a, you know, a buzzkill, but Herod's hopes were pretty high. You know, I mean, he set his hope becoming king of the Jews, mansions, women, chariots, and, and, and he did a lot. But listen, 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 listen. What happened was he achieved all of his hopes and he had nothing more to achieve and his hopes turned to dread because, and here's the truth, everything in his life will fade. What would have happened if Lloyd Christmas got Mary in Dumb and Dumber? And that was his singular hope. Would have faded. Just like the money in the briefcase, really going into this movie. But just like the money in the briefcase faded. They find a million dollars in a briefcase and they, they, they spend it all accidentally. But anyway, we know that something doesn't come from nothing. We know that this life is not all there is. But most of us live like this life is all there is. You know, most of you would say, well, I'm not an atheist. And that's true. In your head, you're not an atheist. Just in your heart and actions, you live like there's no God. Practical atheism. That's what we do. You believe in God? Yeah. Do you live like God exists? No. Is your hope in eternity? No. Years ago, an acquaintance of mine shared a story with me. He um, was a pastor of a church you probably heard of, one of the fastest growing largest churches in the country. And he met with a man who has recently passed away named the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. 
And if you don't know Billy Graham, he is the most influential person in the 20th century. He met with more world leaders than anyone else in human history. He spoke in front of more live people than anyone else in human history, more than a billion people in live audiences. I mean, Billy Graham is this amazing, amazing man. He was almost um, completely deaf though when this acquaintance met him. And uh, he was given an opportunity to ask Dr. Graham to pray for him. And the man thought about it because this is a big honor to have this guy. I mean, I just, I cannot overstate the legacy of Dr. Graham. But he thought about it and he said, Dr. Graham, would you just pray for my sermon writing? I have this mantle that I'm carrying and I'm, you know, these sermons and whatever, and you've preached literally thousands of sermons in your life, all of them just piercing people's hearts. Could you pray that God would allow me to speak like that? And uh, so his attendant took a literal speaking trumpet and shouted in Dr. Graham's ear what he wanted him to pray for. And Dr. Graham looks at the guy and goes, that's a silly request, I'm not gonna pray for that. And then he proceeded to pray instead for the man's love for Jesus. He prayed that the young pastor would set his hope on the things of eternity, that his heart would yearn for heaven and that he would bleed for a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. And that his love for God would be the first, last and greatest thing in his life. And I just love that prayer. What's interesting is that prayer is the exact same kind of prayer that the Apostle Paul gives to his churches. If you ever read the New Testament, there's a big part of it where um, the Apostle Paul writes to these different churches that he's um, helping lead and planted and everything else. <clears throat> and do you know what Paul prays for every time he prays for a church? He doesn't pray that churches would grow. He doesn't pray uh, for healing for them. Instead, he prays that they would love God every single time. And I actually lifted one of those prayers out of the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus in the ancient city of Ephesus. And this is what Paul says. He goes, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father for them. He says, and I pray that you may have the power to understand as all God's people should, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Do you, want to have a, do you want to have a full life? Do you want to have the power of God? Then pray that you can love God more completely, that you can know his love more completely. That is the pathway. He prays that they will love God more and set their hopes on his promises because he knows that everything else in this life is fleeting. He knows that something doesn't come from nothing. You know, the religion of atheism the religion of the multiverse, the religion of self, of awokeness and progressivism, all those religions are silly. All the data, all the science, all the archeology, span it tells us that the God of the Bible is the one true living God. Listen, I don't think that Christianity is a religion. I simply think it is the empirical truth. That's why I follow it. I don't follow the religion of Christianity. It's not a religion, it is simply truth. Paul's know, Paul knows that dread is defeated by hope placed in the arms of God. For that is the highest hope above every other hope. It's the only hope that'll never be surpassed. And the reason for so many of us that our hope is turning to dread in this life is because we set our hopes too low. That's why I said, place your hopes in the highest hope. Think about it, everything in this life, you know, some of you guys right now, you're hoping for a new car. 
you're praying for a new car. Some of you are manifesting for a new car, right? I mean, you just can't wait. You go to the showroom, you look, and you smell, and you put it on your vision board, and you can't wait. And you look at all the trim levels, you know all the detail, and the horsepower, and the torques, and all the things that this car, and it is so nice. You can't wait to have the screen with the Apple CarPlay and whatever else. You want it so bad. And as soon as you get it, what happens? Hope turns to dread. <laughs> Kids, clean off your shoes. Don't get it. Don't get your juice box. No, no juice boxes in my car. Not a, not a dent. Gonna park in the far lot of church by all the staff members because I don't want my car to get door dings. Hope of a new house. Oh, the designs, the sighing. It's white and goes up and down. And the black trim and the gray floors that will not go out of style ever. And you get it. And as soon as you get it, the whole turn, hey, well, welcome to Christmas. Please take off your shoes, please. What are we, Japanese? Take off your shoes. Hello, Ohio Gazimus. What are you doing? Hope turns to dread the hope of a child. Oh, Lord, please open my wife's womb. Lord, please open my womb. You know, you're praying. Pray, God, give me a kid. God, me as soon as you have a kid. Listen, as soon as you have a kid, your hope will turn to dread. Uh, Look at the curves. They give you all the numbers. When you go to your pediatrician, like, oh my goodness, they're only in the 50th percentile. Oh, my kid's not above average for weight. God, what's wrong? What if they have the thing? What if their mind doesn't? What if this thing? What if we have a bad relationship? They're fighting all the time. Little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. And you prayed for this kid and the hope turned to dread. And the hope of your life. That turns to dread. Can't wait to get on Medicare. Supplement A and B and C and D. And I don't know what all the supplements are, but you know, you get them and then you get your knee replacements and you get your hip replacement and you see and does Medicare, does it cover this and at home and do I get one of them scooters, whatever else. And all the hope turns to dread. It does, because you're dying. Because you're dying. It's a natural part of life. And the reason Christmas has lost its luster for so many of us is because we set our hopes too low, too low. So I have a simple challenge. And listen, when you come to this church, my goal isn't to be funny or entertaining. You know, some of y'all, you're like, that was really funny. Where he talked about, you know, the Chinese thing. Was that inappropriate in the Japanese? I mean, I don't know. You're thinking about that. Listen, I don't want you to learn. I don't want you to laugh. I want you to be transformed by the power of the gospel of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You come to church to take action. So I have an action for you. And I want you to apply this. And it's really simple. I've got three steps within this. And the first one, even if you're not a Christian, you can do. But I want you... Um, Zero is to set your hope on the things of God. Set your hope on the things of God this week. What I did was I wrote down three statements that I want you to say once a day for the next seven days. We're in the season called Advent and the whole purpose of this season is to prepare our hearts for Christmas, to prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus coming from heaven to earth, Jesus being born. And if you want Christmas Eve to be special, listen, you show up here at Christmas Eve and we're gonna do a great service and it's gonna be awesome and it'll be emotive. But if you want it to be a powerful, soulful event, you must prepare your heart. So I've got three statements that I'd like you to say out loud for the next seven days, once a day in the morning. And if I was really prepared and I hadn't filled my sermon, I had enough time, I'd have printed them out and given to you, but I didn't. So you're gonna have to write them down on your blue card. But first one, I want you to say each morning, even if you're not a Christian, this life is not all there is. That is a powerful statement. And there's just too much data to believe otherwise. Something doesn't come from nothing. We look at the fine tuning of the universe. We look at all these things and we know, even Elon Musk is like, well, I think we're in a computer simulation, which is complete idiocy. I mean, come on, you know, we know there is a supernatural God beyond this universe who created us. 
And even if you're not a Christian, when you're sitting there in the hustle and the bustle and you've got all these things and you know, so-and-so is failing and so-and-so is mad at somebody else and your boss isn't happy with you and you're late on your bills and credit card statement and this thing, and you just sit back and you say, this life is not all that there is. This life is not all there is. This life is not all there is. And I tell you what, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're an atheist, you say that, you know, that is a transformative statement. Second one, my hope comes from God's promise of eternity through Jesus. There is no other higher hope. This is it. If you're not a Christian, become one by setting your hope in Jesus. This is the hope of the world. We set our hope on this promise not getting healed, not a surgery working out, not this thing. I got a bunch of medical issues and I gotta keep reminding myself, my hope doesn't come from doctors, it comes from Jesus, right? And if he heals me by taking me home or he heals me through this surgery, it's all good, it's all good. Number three, I will live for eternal things, not earthly things. And this is my favorite of the three. This is what I wanna lead my children, my family, my wife to do. This means that people, family, friends, and self, we're living for eternal life. Christmas is around the corner. I told my family, who are we bringing with us? Who are we bringing with us? I don't wanna waste my life. I'm already middle-aged, you know? Like, that's it. I don't wanna, I mean, it's, it's almost all done. Like, I've lived, I've done half my career. Like, I don't wanna waste my life. I wanna bring people with me. I wanna live for eternal things. Who am I bringing to Christmas Eve? Who are you bringing? Some of you, um, You've been following Jesus for a long time. And do you remember when you were young? You know, when you were first dating, you looked at your wife, you said, I can't wait to reach the nations. And you first give your life to Christ and it's like, I can't wait. We're gonna reach the nations. We're gonna share the gospel. We're gonna have a marriage founded on the principles of God. I mean, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this great stuff. And you dreamed and you did all these things. And it was like, your heart, where was your heart? It was set on the things above. It was set on God's promises. I mean, it was, it was there. And what happened? Your hope fell to earth. Right? And I know of no greater way to destroy the things of this life than to have your heart fall from heaven to earth. And you just start hoping for all these silly things. And if that's you, and you know, it's you. You know that I've had you in this message and not really me, it's just the power of God through his word in your life. I just want you to repent of that. And I want you to resolve today to say, Jesus, I repent of worshiping the things of this world, setting my hope on the things of this world, setting my hope on a son or a daughter or a wife or a husband, repenting, whatever. Lord, I just, it, it's my fault. I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about you. I give my heart back to you. I trust you. I set my hope on you. As we close, I'd like to ask all of us to stand to our feet. And I'd just like to pray for all of us right now. Lord God, we just thank you for the season of hope that Christmas brings. We thank you for the assurance that you wrote into the universe that this life is not all that there is. Where there's so much evidence that points to you. We know that you set the foundations of the world and the universe as the angels rejoiced. And we just worship you, we acknowledge that. We know that this life is not all there is. And Lord, today we declare that our hope comes from your promise of eternity through Jesus Christ. We trust you with our life, we trust you with our heart, we give it all to you. And today we resolve to live for eternal things, not earthly things. 
we set our hearts on your things. God, would you give us the courage to lead our families back to you? Would you give us the courage to lead our, our, our wives, our husbands, our children to set our hope on your promises this season? Lord, we rejoice and thank you for sending your son Jesus from heaven to earth to redeem the world. You're the only hope. We can't wait to celebrate that next week. But Lord, today we set our hope on you, Jesus. We give it to you. It's in your matchless name that we pray. All God's people said, amen.